What should have been game over for Jonah became something else, something rather surprising, something rather wonderful. He was spared destruction, but he wasn't picked up by a cruise ship doing an eastern Mediterranean loop. No, this was something else that got him. He was taken down to the very depths in the belly of a large fish. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And Jonathan, today we begin a new series, Grace to the Depths. And uh, really, I love the fact that we're taking some time to look at the story of Jonah. Because I think very often we grow up with the very simple Sunday school version of Jonah. He got swallowed by a whale and spit out on on the dry land. But um, I think even in the Old Testament story of Jonah, we see the hand of God so at work in orchestrating his life and the events of the story. That's right. It's just wonderful to dig into this story, which will be familiar for many, but has such rich truth for us. And I think one of the things we're going to see as we dig into the story of Jonah is the amazing depths of the grace and the mercy of God. Uh, Jonah, we might think of him as the hero of the story, but he's no hero at all. What Jonah enables us to see is that God is the hero of the story, and he's really exalted in our eyes as we look at what takes place uh, in these great events. You know, one of the things that I found in the story of Jonah is, uh, unfortunately, at times I see too much of Jonah in me, the way that uh, he ran from God and wrestled with God, uh, in a sense, and um, even when he was doing the ministry that God had called him to do, not always the, the purest of motives and hearts. Well, that's exactly right. And the Bible is wonderfully and disarmingly honest about its great characters. And Jonah's no exception here. And as we see his flaws and his weaknesses, we identify with him, I think. But we also then receive encouragement because if God's grace and mercy extended to him, it can extend to me too. And I'm thankful for that. Amen to that. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Jonah, obviously, looking at the first two chapters today as we begin a message called Grace to the Depths. Here is Jonathan. Well, how big is the heart of God? How wide is the grace of God? How deep is the mercy of God? These are the big questions at the very heart of this brief book of Jonah. It's the 8th century BC, and the prophet Jonah receives a divine word that he is instructed to deliver on the Lord's behalf. But this time, the word from God is not for the Lord's own people. It's not for Israel. It is instead for the Gentile people of Nineveh in Assyria. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, says God, because its wickedness has come up before me. Located in what is now northern Iraq, Nineveh was a long way from Israel by ancient standards. And as God's own verdict tells us, this was a city marked by sin. The Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was a key city, it posed considerable threat to Israel. And in a few short years, it would actually lead to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria was a mighty empire. 
So Jonah's commission was perhaps not a very comfortable one that he received from the Lord. Travel a long way to give an uncomfortable message to a hostile people in a sinful city for whom you probably don't feel a great deal of natural affection. Well, evidently the job description didn't thrill Jonah all that much. He would have been happy to allow another prophet to run with this particular opportunity. So here's what he decided to do. He decided to take off in the opposite direction. Instead of heading northeast of Israel, heading into Assyrian territory, Jonah headed south to the port of Joppa. And then he boarded a ship heading as far west as he could possibly go. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was, but scholars tend to think it was possibly somewhere in Spain. For an ancient Israelite, that was literally as far west as you could possibly imagine going without falling off the edge of the map. And we read in verse 3 that after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, we hear that sentiment, and we hear that plan, and we think to ourselves, this guy is missing out on something pretty obvious here. God is God, so you can't go somewhere where He is not. God is God, so you are not going to be able to outrun Him. We borrowed a children's book from the library the other day all about things that move, planes and trains and automobiles. And there's a page there in the book all about supersonic airplanes. We all remember the Concorde, of course, which incidentally had its maiden test flight 50 years ago yesterday. I just saw that. London to New York in three hours and 30 minutes is what it achieved. And then there was another plane on that uh, page that I'd never heard of before the SR-71 Blackbird, which flew coast to coast across the United States in 68 minutes. Can you imagine that? Now, those planes, they're pretty quick. But I was reflecting to myself yesterday as we looked at the book, even on one of those things, Jonah wouldn't manage to outrun the Lord. He wouldn't manage to get away from the Lord. There isn't a vehicle on earth that could do it. And on that old boat, well, you're on you're on to a losing bet there, Jonah, my friend. But Jonah, he tries it anyway. He does what is obviously doomed to failure. He gets down to Joppa, he rushes to the port, and he asks around, any ships heading out on the Med, to the far end of the Med, preferably, any ships on their way to the edge of the earth, anyone who will take me far, far away from here. And sure enough, he finds a ship a merchant ship of some kind with some rough-and-tumble pagan crew running it. Jonah pays his money. He climbs aboard. He heads below deck, and he nods off to sleep. Now, no doubt he is physically exhausted from his journey, emotionally and spiritually exhausted from this attempt to run away from the Lord. And sure enough, right on cue, the Lord responds to Jonah's folly. Right on cue, the sovereign Lord demonstrates that his power does not fade away beyond the coast of Israel. He demonstrates that his sovereignty is not geographically constrained. He proves that no one can flee his presence. The Lord sends this violent wind against the ship, such a violent storm that the ship threatens to break up. The sailors above deck, well, they start throwing cargo into the sea, and they start crying out to their various gods. Noticing that Jonah is snoozing below deck, the captain goes to him and he says, look, wake up, buddy. 
Call on your God too. Let's see if some deity or other can help us. There's plenty of mixed up religion on this boat, but they're all clear on this one fact. There is a divine origin to this disaster. Some God somewhere is angry with somebody, and we'd better find out who if we want to survive this storm. Now, from the perspective of the reader, from our perspective, all of this is beginning to look a little fishy, if you don't mind the turn of phrase. The prophet of God, he is ignoring the situation. He is misreading reality. He is being generally obtuse, while the pagan sailors are actually reading the situation just right. They see the basic theological reality with great clarity. Anyway, they decide to cast lots, an ancient means of gaining spiritual insight. They cast lots to see if they can figure out who is responsible for this mess. Well, the lot falls to Jonah. All eyes turn to him. Verse 8, who are you? Where have you come from? What is going on here, Jonah? And Jonah replies, sounding very much the prophet that he is meant to be, pious, authoritative, believing. Verse 9, he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. It's amazing how someone in that kind of position will speak confidently and clearly of their allegiance to the Lord. I've seen that myself, and I wonder if you have too. Someone in a place of major moral and spiritual compromise, happy though to witness to their faith in Christ without seeing the contradiction, happy to speak with confidence of their religious convictions, even while their lives tell a very different story. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, etc., etc. The sailors, while they're now really terrified, Jonah's told them that he is on the run from the Lord, and they wonder what on earth Jonah has gotten them into. But now Jonah does what seems like the decent thing. He says, look, just, just throw me over the side of the boat. Throw me over, and the sea will grow calm. He takes responsibility. This is all my fault, fellas. Get rid of me, and the problem goes away. Well, the sailors, they're pretty hesitant to do that, they try to row to shore rather than allow Jonah to perish. They actually show great reverence to the Lord in what they say and what they do. We're going to come back to that. But eventually, they do the thing they need to do. They throw Jonah into the sea. Well, under any normal circumstances, that would be the end of the story. The rebellious prophet, the useless messenger, he meets a fitting end. Case closed. Drama over. Next story please. But the Lord had other plans. Verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. What should have been game over for Jonah became something else, something rather surprising, something rather wonderful. He was spared destruction, but he wasn't picked up by a cruise ship doing an eastern Mediterranean loop. No, this was something else that got him. He was taken down to the very depths in the belly of a large fish. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and the first message in a series taking a look at Jonah, it's called Grace to the Depths, and we'll get back to this teaching in just one moment. As we're really taking a look at the 
sovereign God and how he is merciful. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported ministry, and we depend on your generosity to keep this broadcast on the station. So if you're listening, thank you for doing that. We want to say thank you by sending you a book that Jonathan has picked out called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. We'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the broadcast, but if you can't stay with us to the end of the program and you want to find out more right now, you can do so by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Also a great place to listen to any broadcast that you may have missed. Again, that's at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, if you are just joining us, we're in the book of Jonah, looking at the first two chapters today. So grab a Bible and open it there. Once again, here is Jonathan. What should have been game over for Jonah became something else, something rather surprising, something rather wonderful. He was spared destruction, but he wasn't picked up by a cruise ship doing an eastern Mediterranean loop. No, this was something else that got him. He was taken down to the very depths in the belly of a large fish. Now, in my view, raw seafood doesn't smell at all appetizing, even at the best of times. But I can only begin to imagine what partially digested seafood smells like in the belly of a giant fish. This was not a pleasant experience for Jonah. This was, if you like, a severe mercy on the part of God. He was saved, but salvation was a grueling experience for him. And we read at the start of chapter 2 that from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Chapter 2 is itself a long prayer, a prayer that comes from the heart of a man who knows God and who has walked with God, but who has been wandering from God in terrible disobedience and is now beginning to come to his senses. Jonah sees that the Lord has helped him, that the Lord has saved him. He sees that running away from the Lord and turning to idols instead, that is a foolish business. And so he says, verse 9, but I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And so the first half of the book ends on a rather undignified, but a fully grace-filled note, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Well, as a story, it is pretty hard to beat. As a drama, it doesn't get a whole lot more exciting, more surprising, more engrossing than this one. It's a great read. It is a memorable tale. It's great material for a, an illustrated kid's Bible. But what is it here for? What are we to see in this? What are we to learn from it? Well, as is normal in Scripture, the hero of the story is not the human actor, and the focus of the story is not simply on human failure. No, the hero of the story and the focus of the drama is God Himself. See, before this is a story about Jonah or about a large fish or a pagan city, before all that, this is a book about God. In particular, it is a book about God's sovereignty, which is wider than we might imagine. And it is a book about His mercy, which is deeper than we could ever fathom. The story teaches us that the sovereign God is merciful, first, to the undeserving lost. The sovereign God is merciful 
to the undeserving lost. See, that's actually the basic truth that scandalized Jonah. This is the thing that gets him so upset at the first place. Remember where all this started. God commissions Jonah to go and preach against the great city of Nineveh because of its wickedness. Now, Jonah, he knows what God is like. He's a prophet of the Lord, remember. He knows that God is full of mercy. In fact, over in chapter 4 and verse 2, he's going to say this, That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in astounding love, a God who relents from sending calamity. When Jonah gets that commission to go to Nineveh and preach against it, he knows how this thing is going to go, how it's going to play out. When God gives warnings of judgment, he gives those warnings not to condemn people, but to call them to turn, to flee, to repent. See, Jonah knows that God is a God of astounding mercy and wonderful grace. That's what he's seen. That's what he's actually experienced in his own ministry over time. When we encounter Jonah in his other biblical appearance in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah prophesies there a message of restoration and blessing for Israel. And that message comes to fruition at a time when the nation really doesn't deserve it one bit. The chapter, which we don't have time to look at, but the chapter opens by telling us that the king in those days, King Jeroboam, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we, we expect, okay, this is going to be a bad chapter. Bad king equals bad times. But the very next thing we read over there in 2 Kings 14, the very next thing we read is that during Jeroboam's reign, God brought blessing to the nation. To be specific, he brought the restoration of territory that had been lost, and he did so in fulfillment of the word that was brought through Jonah the prophet. You see, Jonah knows what God is like. He knows how kind God is. And when it comes to Nineveh, when it comes to a pagan city in the ugly empire that's such a threat to Israel, when it comes to those people doing those wicked things, Jonah draws this graceless line in the sand, and he says, no way. You can be kind and you can be gracious to Israel all you want. You can give Israel more chances than we deserve. But no, I am not going to be the guy who goes over to help out the Assyrians. I am not going to be the guy who shares the family blessing, the kindness of our God with the undeserving Gentiles, with the Assyrians of all people. No way, Jose, not me, not today, not on my watch, no thank you. (laughs) And off he stomps to Tarshish in a full-blown, puerile meltdown. It's a fantastically childish move, isn't it? We've all seen it. We've probably all been there, at least in childhood. Someone else is being treated nicely. Maybe they're getting away with something that you didn't get away with. The younger sibling is avoiding the punishment when the older one would have faced the full force of the law. And there's jealousy. There's petty resentment. There's even anger. We see it, of course, in the story of the prodigal son, don't we? In the brother's reaction, why are you so kind to him when I've stayed home, when I've been the good one? 
Well, Jonah makes his protest, but God is going to do what God is going to do, and he remains committed to his merciful plan. God won't actually let his appointed messenger get away. Jonah, he is going to Nineveh. Jonah, he is going to deliver that message, whatever he thinks. But wonderfully, on the way, en route, God actually uses Jonah's rebellion to bring witness to another group of undeserving Gentiles. Did you notice that in the story? It's so interesting, isn't it? Jonah's not meant to be on that boat going to Tarshish. She's meant to be heading in the opposite direction on land and not on sea. But in the course of those disastrous events on the boat, where he should not have been, what happens? What takes place? Jonah is with a whole crew of pagan sailors, rough, unbelieving guys with all their pagan gods, verse 5. They're crying out to them. They know nothing of the Lord, nothing of the Word, nothing of salvation. But when they recognize that the Lord God of Israel has made this storm and is able to make it go away, notice what happens in their lives. It's very intriguing. Verse 14, who do they call upon? Then they cried to the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. These sailors on the Med, they weren't meant to be involved in the story at all. But through the apparent mishap of Jonah's disobedience and sin, God brought witness to them a witness of his power and his sovereignty. Now, what did that mean in the lives of those men? Were they converted through this? Well, I don't think we can be sure from this brief account. We're not given all the details. But it sounds pretty significant, doesn't it? They recognize the Lord. They fear him. They make sacrifices and vows to him. In any case, whatever their spiritual standing at the end of the chapter this whole incident causes a group of Gentiles to praise the true and the living God. The whole incident works to bring witness to them, and it brings glory to God. Now, the polytheistic idol-worshipping men on that ship, they didn't have any claim on God. The people of Nineveh, in all their sin, they had no right to a word of warning that would allow them opportunity to repent. But you see, God is merciful to the undeserving. And in His sovereignty, He has His ways of bringing His witness to the lost. And He's more than able to do it despite and even through the failures of His messengers. It's wonderful. You see, our God is the great missionary God. He is in the business of reaching the unreached. One of the great lessons that Jonah needed to learn was the depths of mercy to be found in the heart of God. He needed not only to understand it on an intellectual level, as he clearly did, he needed to know it in his heart of hearts in such a way as actually to share it. That was what Jonah needed. And friends, I wonder if you and I today need it as well. I wonder if you and I today really understand the heart of God. 
really grasp the depths of His mercy to the undeserving, His mercy to those who aren't listening, to those who are actually quite content in their sin, those who aren't waiting for a word from God. And that is where we're going to pause today's message here on Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message is called Grace to the Depths, where we're looking at God, His sovereignty, and His mercy. And like I said, we'll continue this message next time. Well, C.H. Spurgeon was a great Victorian preacher, and he wrote a series of readings or devotionals to encourage believers to enter into the full provision that their relationship with Jesus entitled them to realize and encouraging them to do that on a daily basis. He explained why we have to present promises of Scripture to God in prayer and in faith, anticipating that God will honor what He said. Now, this collection of writings, this devotional book, is called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith, and we'd love to send you a copy of this book as you give a gift of any amount to Encounter the Truth this month. It's our way of saying thanks for your support. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884. Or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.